Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit makes these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The Eucalyptus Fiber Upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Southern Fried True Crime covers cases that are not suitable for young listeners, and there may also be some explicit language used. Listener discretion is advised. In the first part of this series, we got to know Darlie and Darren. This young couple found success early and yet still seemed rather immature. They both overspent and liked live in large, as Darren told a reporter at his children's graveside. Darren's business was not doing well. The Routiers owed $10,000 in back taxes, their credit cards were maxed out, and they were two months behind on their mortgage, about to go into foreclosure. Darren and Darley would both later minimize their financial problems. They were either lying or in complete denial. They also completely minimized Darley's postpartum depression. Her journal entries may not have been too much cause for alarm, but there is no getting around her suicide note and the sleeping pills. Why? Why would they minimize these issues if Darley was innocent? For that matter, if Darren was innocent? That's something no one ever talks about. Darren had to know what was going on if Darley killed his children. He might have been a lazy man, but no one ever accused him of being stupid. At some point, he had to know, because as we will see, his story of that night evolves as the evidence comes out. So does Darley's. Maybe it was shock. Maybe there really was an intruder. But is there any evidence of an intruder? Or is there evidence of an extreme connection between Darley and Darren, the couple who looked at each other in their blood-soaked living room as their children were dying, and decided then and there that they were a team and no one would break them apart? Welcome to Episode 140, Darley Routier, Part 2. In the immediate aftermath of the 911 call, Officer David Waddell was the first on the scene. He arrived at 2.32 a.m. while Darley was still on the phone with 911. He arrived within two or three minutes of hearing the call, and he had his gun out and ready. He said he didn't see any cars speeding away, nor did he see anyone on foot. He didn't see anything unusual or suspicious. As he pulled up, Darren came walking out the front door. He told Waddell that his children had been stabbed. Waddell followed Darren inside, and then Darren went across the family room to Devon. Darley was standing near a kitchen counter close to the family room, just feet from where Damon was lying. She held a towel on her neck and a phone in the other hand. Waddell said she was upset and hysterical, screaming and yelling about her babies. He asked her who stabbed her children, and Darley said she didn't know and she couldn't describe the person, but she said they were still in the garage and pointed in that direction. Waddell instructed Darren to apply pressure to Devin's wounds. He said Darren got on his hands and knees and it looked like he was attempting CPR or applying pressure. Then Darren told him it wasn't working. Air was coming out of Devin's chest. Waddell also told Darley, who was still standing in the same place, to get a towel and put it on Damon's back to try and stop the bleeding. 
She didn't move. She just repeated that the attacker was still in the garage. As heard on the 911 call, Waddell can be heard saying, look for a rag, and she can be heard answering him, quote, they killed our babies. Officer Waddell went to the kitchen and tried to look into the garage, but it was dark, and he knew he had to wait for backup. What he thought at the time is that the suspect was still in the house, and he did not want to leave the family unprotected. Later in court, both Darren and Darley would criticize the officer for not trying to help the boys, for not attempting CPR, which is interesting seeing as Darley was just standing there not doing anything to help her own children. Waddell testified, explaining that officers are trained to clear the house first before they provide any medical assistance. Medical assistance is second on their list. Preserving the crime scene is third. The officer returned to the family room only to find that both children were still in the same position. Darren was still with Devin, but Darley was still standing at the kitchen island, yelling for help. Waddell said that with his gun out, he positioned himself between the family and the rest of the house because at that point, he still thought the suspect was in the house and where he was standing was the only way to get into that room. He asked Darley if she could describe the suspect and he said she didn't know if it was a white or a black guy, but that he was wearing a black shirt, dark pants, and a ball cap. He further testified, quote, she told me that she had gotten into a fight with somebody that broke into her house. She fought with the suspect. She told me she fought with him at the end of the bar and that he ran across the kitchen. The officer said that Damon was lying on the floor on his stomach, on the left side of his face, and he thought the child was looking at him and Darley and trying to breathe. Mind you, this is what he thought he was seeing. He had not taken the child's pulse. This will be important in just a bit when we get to Darren's side of the story. He again told Darley to get some towels to stop the bleeding. Again, she just stood there. Waddell later testified, quote, She kept telling me that when she chased the suspect across the kitchen, that he had dropped the knife and that she had picked up the knife and brought it back and set it on the counter, and she told me that she thought she had messed up the fingerprints. Within a minute or two, Sergeant Matthew Walling entered the house. This would be the second officer on the 911 call, the one that the 911 operator told Darley to go talk to, the part where the call finally ended. With his back up there, Waddell took the sergeant with him to search the garage. As they walked through the kitchen towards the garage, they saw blood on the floor and a broken wine glass. They gingerly stepped around everything, walked through the utility room and into the garage. It was dark, and there was no one in there. If there had been a suspect in there, he was gone now. Waddell and Walling both said that when they came back in, Darley was still just standing there near the counter, and there was still no towel on Damon. Right after this, two paramedics arrived, and the officers told Darren and Darley to get out of the way and stand next to the sliding glass doors which led to the backyard. The two officers then went to clear the upstairs area and were surprised to find Drake in his crib. Neither Darley nor Darren had mentioned him. The officers left him in his crib as they hadn't found any intruder upstairs. In fact, Waddell would later testify that he also never heard Darley ask about the condition of either of her dying children, even as one paramedic carried Damon outside to the ambulance. Sergeant Walling also testified to what Darley told him during the chaos of that horrific night. Quote, she had told me that she was asleep on the couch and that she had been awakened and felt somebody standing over her. Then she realized she had been stabbed and she began struggling with the person on the couch and that they had run through the kitchen door into the garage. She said the suspect was a white male wearing a dark colored ball cap, black t-shirt, and blue jeans. Now she knows it was a white male. She told Officer Waddell she couldn't tell his race. You can say shock. You can say remembering something later. But you also need to note that the officers arrived within two minutes of each other. When paramedics arrived, they had to wait in the ambulance for the officers to clear the house, which didn't take long. Paramedic Jack Colby said when he came inside, Officer Waddell was standing in front of the counter that separated the kitchen from the family room. The downstairs of the house was sort of an open concept. A large space with a counter that had bar stools separated the family room from the kitchen. 
The utility room was on the other side of the kitchen, which led out to the garage. I'll have a diagram on my social media. Colby said Darley was standing next to Waddell, holding a towel to her neck and seemed distraught. Darren was standing in the middle of the family room. He described Darren as excited, not distraught. Paramedic Colby said he found Damon lying face down, wearing a black shirt and jeans on the floor of the family room. He examined Damon's back for injuries, then rolled him over. There was no towel on top of him. He was very clear about this in his official statement and in court. This will be important later. Once Damon was rolled over, Colby noticed his eyes were open and that there was, quote, still a light of life left. But then he thought he saw Damon gasp for breath, his last breath, and then Colby said he saw the light go out. I also want to note here that Colby never took Damon's pulse inside the house. This was his impression of the dying child. It was not clinical. But he started CPR, which he immediately said was not working. So he picked Damon up and rushed him outside to the ambulance where there was life support equipment. He said Damon was no longer bleeding at this point. That would be a major indicator that the child's heart had already stopped. Inside the ambulance, he and another paramedic intubated Damon and started an IV in his jugular vein. He also administered epinephrine, but Damon didn't show any response. He and the other paramedic continued CPR during the 15-minute ride to Baylor Hospital. Damon Routier was essentially DOA, but he was officially pronounced dead by a Baylor doctor at 3.26 a.m. Colby had been focused on Damon and his partner, Brian Koschak, had gone to Devon. Devon was lying on his back with no shirt on. He did not have a pulse. His eyes were open and he had a, quote, surprise or kind of help me expression on his face. Koschak realized there was nothing he could do to help Devon, so he went to Darley, who was still by the counter. She was kneeling and holding a towel to her neck. Paramedic Koschak testified that Darley was upset, but she wasn't crying or screaming. She was asking, who could have done this to our babies? He also testified that Darley showed no signs of shock. I want to point out here that pro-innocence people will stress that Darley's throat was slashed, that she almost died, but she was standing up, screaming and yelling at times, merely holding a towel to her neck. I will get into what the doctors say later, but it's difficult to imagine that she almost died. This would have been about 10 minutes since she called 911, and she hadn't passed out. You can argue adrenaline, but you cannot argue what blood loss would do to a human being. Darley Routier was not gravely injured. Koschak took Darley to the porch where he dressed Darley's neck and arm. He literally just put bandages over the cut on her neck, inadvertently catching a gold chain in the bandage. She also had a cut on her right forearm. Regardless, Darley was covered in blood. Everyone at the scene that night had every reason to believe she had been attacked. She was quickly bandaged and put in an ambulance and taken to Baylor Hospital. In the ambulance, her blood pressure was 140 over 80, pretty close to perfect. Not low, as you would expect from someone who had lost a great deal of blood. Paramedic Brian Koschak stayed behind to check on Darren and baby Drake. Both were fine. He carried Drake downstairs and handed him to a neighbor named Karen. Karen was also allowed inside the house to get the Routier's dog, a Pomeranian named Domino, who was barking incessantly. In fact, the dog could be heard on the 911 call. Koschak then called a chaplain to counsel anyone at the scene. He said he had never been at a scene like that before, and it was very hard to deal with. I'm going to pause now for a short commercial break. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Darlie arrived at the hospital not long after Dr. Alejandro Santos had declared her son Damon dead on arrival. A nurse testified that before she was taken to surgery, she alternated between screaming, I need pain medication and why did they kill my boys? An attending doctor named Patrick Dillon later testified that he asked her what happened and she said she was stabbed by a white man in a baseball cap, but that she only saw him from the back. Notice that her story is already evolving. First, she could not tell if he was white or black. Then she said he was a white man. Now she is qualifying that statement saying she only saw him from the back, which directly contradicts the first two stories that she fought this man when she awoke and he was standing over her. Dr. Santos decided they needed to take Darley to the operating room to do exploratory surgery. It's better to be safe than sorry when it comes to the neck, and due to the amount of blood on Darley's nightshirt, it was unclear how damaging the cut was. Once they were in surgery, the surgeons realized that her throat wound was superficial. It was around three and a half inches long and just nicked the platysma muscle. It extended to, but did not go through, the carotid sheath, which covers the carotid artery. They irrigated the cut and simply stitched it up. The platysma muscle is thin and has more to do with muscle tone. The cut did not go to the strap muscles in the neck. Medical examiner Dr. Townsend Parchman later explained this on the stand, quote, You have a lot of long, thin muscles which overlay the neck, running up and down. It did not involve those muscles, but it did get a few of what we call little bleeders, minor blood vessels right on top of the thyroid here at the base of the neck. It was, however, two millimeters from nicking the carotid artery. If it had been cut, she would have bled out in minutes, even putting pressure on the wound. Dr. Santos, who operated on Darley, later testified that the wound cut through the skin and fat but did not penetrate the muscle below. It was what he called a laceration, a cut. When OR techs pulled the bandages off, the chain around her neck was freed and collected for evidence. The cut on her arm had already stopped bleeding, but she was given three or four stitches anyway. There was also a superficial stab wound on her left shoulder. It also was really a cut. It was about one and a half inches long and did not even need stitches. They closed it with stary strips. Her throat was not slashed ear to ear, and she did not spend days fighting for her life in the ICU. After about an hour in the operating room, Darley was transferred to the ICU. She got there around 5 a.m., and that's when she stopped receiving anesthesia. Her wounds weren't bad enough for the ICU, but Dr. Santos felt it would be a better place for her. He was worried about how she would react when she found out her children were dead. He didn't know she already knew they were dead, and he was worried about the media disturbing her. He understandably felt that the ICU was a more controllable environment. This was something that has always bothered me about Darley's supporters and documentaries, books, and even some podcasters who have dramatically said she was in the ICU for days. Dr. Santos testified and clarified that it was not for medical reasons. Darley was admitted in the early morning of June 6th after the murders and released on the morning of June 8th. She would make several unsolicited comments to nurses and doctors during her stay at Baylor. Dr. Patrick Dillon testified that Darley kept trying to talk to him about the knife and what happened. 
This was about an hour after her recovery, and he told her he didn't want to hear about those things. He was just there to check on her medical condition. Her first nurse in the ICU testified that Darley did cry and say, how could anyone do this to my children? And then, without being asked, she told him that she picked up the knife after the killer had dropped it. She was worried her fingerprints would have obscured his. The ICU nurse was not asking questions. This was just Darley talking. She asked for pain medication, and the nurse knew that police were waiting to question her, so he asked her to rate her pain, and she gave it a 3 out of 5. So he gave her a very small dose of Demerol and Finergan. At 6 that morning, detectives Jimmy Patterson and Chris Frosch showed up to speak to Darley and photograph her wounds. They asked her if she felt well enough to talk, and she said that she did. She told the detectives that she awoke to find an intruder over her. She saw him with a knife. He was leaning over her, and she didn't realize that she had been cut. She said she struggled with the suspect, and that he backed off and walked towards the utility room. She chased him, and as he went into the garage, she saw a knife on the floor of the utility room. She said she picked up the knife and placed it on the bar top, and so her fingerprints would be on it. Then she screamed for Darren and called 911. Detective Patterson asked her to stop and back up. He wanted to know what the suspect was wearing. She said a black cap turned to the front and that he had long, dark brown hair. It was straight and shoulder length. She could not describe anything about his face. She said he wore a black t-shirt and blue jeans. She did not notice any tattoos or scars. She said the man was tall and about Frosch's size, which was about 6'2". Patterson asked her if she had been sexually assaulted, and she said she wasn't sure and agreed to a rape test, which was negative. The detective later testified that she did not cry at all during the conversation and didn't mention the boys except to say they had been stabbed. He asked if she and Darren had argued that night, and she said they had talked about finances for a few minutes and then kissed each other and said they loved each other before Darren took Drake upstairs to sleep. Patterson also asked Darley about her dog Domino, who was heard barking on the 911 call, and all during the time when police and paramedics were first in the home. He asked her if the dog was barking when she saw the attacker, chased him, and screamed for Darren. She said, come to think of it, no, he didn't. And that was all for the questioning at that time. Darley was agitated about police photographing her wounds, and she asked for a Xanax immediately following this brief interview. Day shift nurses came in to take of Darley, and they said she repeated her story many times. But then her story shifted again. She told nurse Jody Cotner now that Damon had woke her up by shaking her and saying, Mommy. Cotner later testified that Darren was in the room for this conversation and added at this part something like, that's when I must have heard you scream, or I heard you screaming and it woke me up. She said she saw blood and knew she had been hurt. She got up and walked towards the kitchen and Damon followed her. She said she told him to lay down. This is a completely different story, but it did match her formal statement to police two days later. Well, part of it did. Another nurse heard Darley and Darren repeatedly going over the story that night. They said the intruder came in the garage window, but Darren said he was certain he locked it. Then Darley said the boys must have unlocked it. This went on so long that the nurse said Darley needed to stop focusing on the attack and just rest. When she told her story to friends and family, it also kept changing. Though she did not tell detectives this, she repeated the story that Damon woke her up and that she pushed him and told him to wait for mommy. Nurse Jody Cotner testified that typically mothers are inconsolable when they found out their child has died. But Darley was withdrawn. She didn't cry very often, and she was detached. Cotner said these weren't the emotions she would typically see with mothers. She said that Darley's mother and sister were in the room, and they were hysterical. Even one of the neighbors in the room couldn't stop crying. Cotner further testified that at one point, the neighbor brought baby Drake into the room. Darren held him, but Darley didn't want to touch him due to her wounds, so Cotner took Drake and held him in a way that would allow Darley to touch cheeks with him. But Darley turned her head away from Drake, so Cotner gave the baby back to Darren. 
Dr. Santos and two other nurses would testify that Darley had a flat effect. They said it was unusual and not due to medication. Santos said that most of the times he has dealt with child deaths, the mothers get hysterical. He had never seen anyone act the way Darley did. He said she continued to show the same flat effect until her discharge. The medical examiner named Janice Townsend Parchman was sent in to evaluate Darley's wounds at the request of detectives. The wound on her arm was not a stab wound, as Darley's supporters would later insist. It did, however, go to the bone, but that was not unusual due to where it was on her forearm. As Dr. Townsend Parchman pointed out at trial, feel your own arm right there. It doesn't take much to feel your bone. It's right below the skin and muscle. For some people, there might even be more fatty tissue, but not on slender Darley. Years later, some supporters would straight up lie and say that the bone was shattered and marrow had gotten into her bloodstream. That is absolutely false, as her medical records and two doctors testified. Dr. Patrick Dillon, who treated Darley along with Dr. Santos, testified, it went through the muscle to the bone, but there was no fracture. Santos agreed that the bone is relatively close to the skin of the arm. It was a superficial cut, and there was a smaller cut near it, which one doctor said at trial may have been a hesitation cut. Dr. Santos also testified that neither of the right forearm wounds appeared to be defensive. Typically, there would be multiple slash marks horizontally across the underneath part of the forearm. These marks came from putting your forearms up to keep someone from slashing at you. Darley also had a minor cut across her left fingers and thumb. When a nurse asked her how she got these cuts during the evening hours of June 6th, Darley said, this is where I tried to grab the knife. The nurse testified, they looked like paper cuts to me. They were scabbed over and just on the surface. Dr. Santos said this is not what he would classify as a defensive wound. He said, usually they would be larger and deeper. Typically with defensive wounds, you would see the puncture wound to the hand, to the palm, and to the fingers. And they should be deeper wounds if someone is trying to stab you. Dr. Townsend Parchment agreed, saying defensive wounds and hands commonly went all the way through tendons down to the bone. She also testified that all of Darley's injuries were relatively superficial. They didn't go very deep into her body and didn't strike any vital structures, she said. She also said that it was possible that all of the wounds were self-inflicted. But on cross-examination, she said it was also possible that someone else inflicted them. Any expert on the stand cannot say definitively. They can only give their opinion. And in the opinion of the doctors who treated her and the medical examiner, Darley's wounds were not only superficial, but probably self-inflicted. And now we need to compare Darley's wounds to those that her little boys suffered. Devin Routier had been stabbed four times, twice in the chest. One wound in his upper left chest went five inches deep, penetrating his lung and pulmonary artery. The other chest wound was in the left mid-portion of his chest and went two and a half inches deep, penetrating his liver. Devin bled to death internally and externally from these wounds. If you remember, his body was not removed from the house. He was dead when paramedics got there. And let's talk about the other two stab wounds. One was on his left forearm, and like Darley's, it only penetrated soft tissue. The other wound was on his back left thigh. He also had abrasions on his arms, palms, legs, and back. These aren't necessarily defensive wounds, but Devin also wasn't really fighting an attacker. He was stabbed in his sleep. It was more like an involuntary reaction. But he did obviously react and move. The abrasions prove that. And he was found on his back. How did he get a stab wound, no matter how shallow, on the back of his thigh, if he hadn't been trying to get away? Damon Routier, who was taken to the hospital, died from four stab wounds to his back. One was almost two inches deep and punctured his left lung. Another was four and a half inches deep and penetrated his right lung. A third wound was two inches deep, which also penetrated his right lung. And his fourth wound was three inches deep and penetrated his right lung, diaphragm, and liver. Damon also had two incised wounds on his back, 
one that went a third of the inch into the muscle of the left shoulder, and one that went three-fourths of an inch into the muscle of the upper left back. Damon also had abrasions on his back, right arm, and both feet. Damon's wounds, as well as how long he could have lived, will be a point of major contention at trial. First, because he had definitely crawled from where he had originally lain. Darren said he had been asleep between the couch and the coffee table, close to where Darley was sleeping. He was found near the entrance to the stairs, almost as if he had crawled towards the stairway, perhaps to try and get to his father. The biggest point of contention is that Damon's wounds supposedly set a timeline that people believe is set in stone. I will get into that more later, but basically, a doctor was asked if he could live up to nine minutes, and the doctor said it was possible. But as I said, with any expert testimony in court, the doctor could not have said definitively, and it is very doubtful that Damon could have stood up and walked behind his mother, much less said mommy, mommy, with stab wounds that pierced his lungs. What is possible is that he was stabbed twice, and then some time passed, and then he was finished off, to put it bluntly. And what is most striking is the difference in severity to what the boys suffered and Darley's superficial wounds. The boys were stabbed viciously with force. It's not as easy to stab someone as you might think. The killer would have raised the knife over their head for maximum force. I'm going to pause now to hear a word from today's sponsors. When it comes to podcasts covering mystery and murder, Generation Y is a true original. If you're obsessed with crime and unsolved mysteries, this show has it all. Hosts Aaron and Justin cover cases from all angles. They break down theories, dive deep into forensic evidence, and discuss their opinions on the most perplexing cases. In a recent episode, Aaron and Justin look into the case of Lori DuPont. Lori was a well-respected 37-year-old nurse and single mom. She met a doctor named Mark Daniel at work, and they hit it off. Off, beginning a secret relationship. But after a while, the romance cooled, and Mark began harassing Lori at work. Turns out, Mark had a history of dating and being abusive to nurses. Lori filed for a restraining order, but before a judge could issue it, Mark entered the hospital with a military sword and committed the unthinkable. I've listened to the Generation Y for years, starting when I was a commuter, and these guys were one of the first true crime podcasts on the scene. I enjoy their show so much and also respect their opinions. They come at cases with such fresh perspectives and impeccable research. Listen to the Generation Y podcast on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness? Or is something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp is there for you. They were there for me when I was suffering from post-surgery depression. They have licensed professionals in all 50 states who specialize in all kinds of issues like depression, anxiety, trauma, grief, and family conflicts. Connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. BetterHelp is also available for clients worldwide. Find the particular expertise you need online. Don't limit yourself to the counselors located near you. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. You can message your counselor anytime and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. BetterHelp is convenient, confidential, and more affordable than traditional offline counseling. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor, betterhelp.com southern. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot southern. On June 8th, Darley was released from the hospital and the police picked her up and took her to the station for questioning. Darren was part of the questioning as well. Police kept them there separated for six to seven hours. In fact, they were two hours late to the funeral home for the first viewing of their sons. At the station, Darley and Darren gave their first official statements. Darley went into a fair amount of detail about what happened that day and evening before the murders, fixing dinner, saying the boys could sleep downstairs, making popcorn, etc. She said that her sister Dana was there, but she asked Darren to drive her home because she wasn't feeling well. 
Dana worked for Darren and had come home with him that day because she didn't have a car. Darley makes no mention of organizing the garage, and neither does Darren in his statement, though he did testify to it in court. She does say that she told Darren she had been depressed because she had been stuck at home without the car. She said they decided she would sleep on the couch that night because the baby woke her up too much upstairs. Darren went to bed around 12.30 or 1, and then she went to sleep and said she woke up and felt a pressure on her. She said Damon was pressing on her right shoulder and she heard him cry. Then she saw a man standing down by her feet, and he started walking away from her. She said she walked after him, heard glass breaking, and then stopped in the kitchen and turned the light on. She then said she saw a big white-handled knife lying on the floor of the utility room. She said she grabbed the knife, thinking the killer was in the garage, and she shut the door to the garage. This is when she said she yelled for Darren. Then she went back into the kitchen and put the knife on the counter. She said when she looked over at Darren, she noticed that the coffee table had been knocked half over and the flower arrangement had been knocked off. She said Darren ran down the stairs as she called 911. He started giving Devin CPR and she said, quote, while I put a towel on my neck and a towel on Damon's back. She said she saw a glass, quote, all over the kitchen floor. Then she went to the door and screamed for her neighbor, Karen, who was a nurse. She was still on the phone with 911 and said everything was happening fast. She then said she went back to Damon and he had stopped moving, and this is when police entered the house. As the paramedics worked on her children, she said she remembered screaming and asking if her babies were dead, and Darren was crying and said yes. She said she then showed Darren her neck and he took her to the front porch and then went back to get the baby. She said he brought Drake downstairs and handed him to Karen, the neighbor. She said Darren wasn't allowed to go with her in the ambulance, and she remembers being told she needed surgery at the hospital, and quote, I woke up, and minutes later, detectives were there asking me all kinds of questions. There are a few things to note here. She changed her story significantly by saying Damon woke her up. She originally said several times that she woke up with the killer leaning over her and then she fought with him. Now, she says, he was at her feet, then walking away from her, and she just followed him. She also claims that she applied a towel to Damon's back, even though Officer Waddell said she kept ignoring him when he told her to get a towel for Damon. The paramedic also said there was no towel on Damon. It would seem she had had time to think about her story and remembered how many times the officer told her to get a towel. She knew it would look bad that she didn't, so she said in her official statement that she did, contradicting law enforcement and medical personnel on the scene. She also now says she merely followed the attacker. This is contradictory to every story she had told about that night. She told the 911 operator, both responding police officers, and countless medical personnel that she fought with the attacker. Why would she change that part of her story? It makes her look like a hero, and there was no witnesses to contradict her. It was probably because she could not give a good description of the attacker. If this man had been in her face, if she had fought him, she should have been able to describe him better. If he was at her feet and walking away, then she could say she didn't see his face. She also said there was glass, quote, all over the kitchen floor, which, first of all, was not true but it was in her path to the kitchen. I'll talk more about this in the crime scene investigation. Darren's official statement basically lined up with his wife's. He gave the same mundane details of the evening before bed. Then he said he woke up when he heard Darley screaming, Devin, oh my God, Devin. He said he ran downstairs and went straight to Devin. He saw two holes in the boy's chest and said he slapped Devin's face to get him to say anything or look at him but got no response. He then said he started CPR on Devin. He blew into his mouth, but the air came out of his chest. He said he covered Devin's chest with his hand and tried a few more times. He claims he even blew into one of the holes in Devin's chest, which makes no sense. 
Darren had actually taken seven years worth of first aid courses and knew how to do CPR. Blowing into a stab wound is not CPR. Anyway, then Darren said he saw Darley on the phone with 911, so he ran to Damon. He said Damon did not have a pulse, but he could not see any injuries. He said the police came in and he told them his sons had been stabbed and the intruder had left through the garage. He said he then ran upstairs to put his pants on and check on Drake. He does not say he brought the baby downstairs. Then Darren said he ran to his neighbor Karen's house. He didn't really know what to do until paramedics arrived, and she was a nurse. Then he found out Darley was hurt and wanted to go to the hospital with her, but was told to stay behind and answer questions. He also told officers on the scene that Damon had had no pulse. And now, let's back up for a bit to the investigation. As soon as the paramedics arrived, Waddell put up police tape and stood guard at the door. He saw the paramedic walk out with Drake. He allowed the neighbor Karen to go upstairs and get Domino, the dog. She did not walk through the crime scene. She went in the front door and directly up the stairs without entering the family room or kitchen. Then Waddell secured the scene, putting police tape up so fast that it had to be moved for some emergency personnel to get into the house. Then he was relieved at 3 a.m. by another officer. So Waddell and a canine officer then searched the neighborhood. They didn't find anyone suspicious. Neighbors were questioned, and a few said they saw cars in the neighborhood that they didn't recognize, but nothing specific enough to investigate. A woman named Mary Rickles, who was not exactly a neighbor, but lived at a home on Miami Drive, which was a few blocks east of the Routier's home on Eagle Drive, called into the tip line for police. I am only talking about her because the defense called her at trial. She said that at 1.30 a.m. she was watching a horror movie when she heard someone trying to get into her house. She flipped on the porch light and saw two men, one in a net cap and one in a cowboy hat, who then ran away when she turned on the light. She said she just went back to her movie, and then she heard tapping on a window and said the same men were trying to get in again, but ran off when they saw her. Rickles did not call 911 that night, which is very strange to me if she thought someone had tried to break into her house twice. She is someone who called in a lead, among hundreds of leads, including those from psychics, if you look at the document in my sources. I feel that she was discredited at trial on cross-examination by the state especially since she described two men trying to break into her house, neither of which were dressed as the man Darley described. The Rowlett Police Department has been called small town by pro-innocence people. Cops who didn't know what they were doing. Well, Detectives Patterson and Frosch were capable of questioning Darley, but they knew they needed more expertise when it came to investigating the crime scene. James Cron was called in as a consultant. He had recently retired from the Dallas Sheriff's Department after 29 years. And at the time of the Routier murders, he had investigated some 21,000 crime scenes in his time as a detective and then as a consultant. They also requested and got assistance from the nearby Richardson Police Physical Evidence Supervisor, Jeff Craig, who helped obtain blood evidence from the kitchen and other areas. Cron arrived at 5.45 that morning. He said that in the family room, the only thing out of the ordinary was a lot of blood on the carpet. And, of course, the dead child still laying there. Remember, Devin was already dead and not taken by ambulance, so his body was left for the investigators. Cron said the coffee table looked sort of knocked ajar, but the flower arrangement was still on top of the glass, so it had not been knocked over. Remember, Darley said the table was knocked over and the flower arrangement was on the floor. Technicians did not move anything before Cron came into the house. He said there were not any obvious signs of a struggle like you would expect there to be. A lampshade had been knocked off, but one of the paramedics had said he had done that inadvertently and there was no blood on it or the lamp itself. Next, Cron went to the kitchen area. There was blood and broken glass from a wine glass and a vacuum cleaner lying on the floor. 
When he saw the glass, he dispatched an officer to take photos of Darley's feet. She had no cuts, though her bare feet had made footprints in blood. On the edge of the counter that divided the kitchen and the family room, there was a bloody butcher knife. Cron noticed a few drops of blood on the floor of the utility room, but there was no blood consistent with a knife being dropped or thrown there. There was some blood on the door from the utility room to the garage, and there were latent prints in the blood, but they were only partials and could not be matched to anyone. In the garage, the window was open and the screen was cut. There was no blood anywhere in the very cluttered garage. If you look at crime scene photos, the path from the window to the utility room is very tight. An intruder, especially one running, would have disturbed all the boxes. There was also a litter box and a large animal cage almost directly in front of the window. One smear of blood left by a shoe was found in the garage, but it was not found until later that afternoon and was believed to be that of a crime scene technician. Cron did have the footprint analyzed and it matched a boot from a technician. There was no evidence whatsoever from an intruder who would have exited that way. No blood, no glass. A thick layer of dust was not even disturbed on the windowsill of the window where the screen was cut. No footprints, no blood, no outside debris. Supporters of Darley have seized upon the fact that Cron mentioned that the mulch outside was not disturbed. There was no mulch under the window where the intruder supposedly entered. There was, however, a large patch of mulched area that he would have run through to get to the gate. And there was mulch between the patio and the gate. This is what Cron was talking about. It's easy to twist the evidence when you cherry-pick from his statements. He found no other signs of forced entry outside. There was no blood on the gate, which was shut and latched from the inside. So the intruder would probably have had to jump the gate, and there would have been footprints and blood on the gate if this was true. Cron said he spent around 30 minutes looking at the scene, and by the time he was done, he did not believe an intruder had gone into the house. He then directed the investigators to take photos and gather evidence as he directed. People have seized upon this 30 minutes comment, when truly, it seems more like a throwaway comment from a professional, that he did know that quickly. However, he did not come to his conclusion right then and there and stop investigating. That's ridiculous. He has asserted in every interview, not to mention court, that it was the totality of all of the evidence. He may have had a gut reaction, but he also said that in any crime scene like this, you do a dual investigation, one looking at the possibility of an intruder and one looking at people inside the home. Cron went back in the kitchen and moved the vacuum after it had been photographed in its original position and was careful not to touch the blood that was visible on the handle. Underneath the vacuum were bloody footprints, blood drops, and broken glass. It also looked like there were roll marks on the floor in the blood that came from the vacuum, and there was blood smeared on the wheels of the vacuum. As Cron looked at the glass more closely, and it was photographed, he found that the bloody footprints were underneath the glass, and there was actually no blood on the glass itself. And the glass was sharp. Cron later testified that when examining a piece, he actually cut his own finger. The glass was from a wine glass that had been on a wine rack in the kitchen. There was no blood on the rack or the bottles in it. Cron tested the force needed to move the wine rack. He rattled it, bumped into it, and jarred it to see if any glasses would fall off, and none did. The only broken glass was from a single wine glass which it would seem someone had deliberately taken from the rack and smashed onto the floor. There were no bloody bare footprints that led from the family room toward the utility room. There were no prints in the kitchen except by the sink. There were none in the utility room and none leading from the utility room back to the sink. Cron also examined the couch where Darley had lain and where she said she had been attacked and her throat was slit. There were no cuts or defects on her pillow or the couch, nor was there the amount of blood you would expect from the knife wound on her neck. There were two latent prints on the glass tabletop in the family room. They were not complete enough for a match. 
However, Cron believed that both were consistent with a juvenile, possibly a five or six year old. There is a lot to learn from the blood evidence and I will get into that more later. I'm going to pause now to hear a final word from today's sponsors. I love trying new wines, but finding them can be intimidating. That's why I love First Leaf Wine Club. They remove all the guesswork, doing all the hard work for me. First Leaf believes wine is personal. They create a custom wine print for each member's unique taste preferences once you take their five-minute quiz. Their winemakers sample 10,000 wines a year across five continents and 12 countries and select only the best bottles for the club. The more wines you rate, the more each shipment is personalized to your taste. There are no contracts or cancellation fees, and if you're not happy with the wine you receive, First Leaf will give you a credit towards your next shipment. It's so much fun to explore new bottles every month. My favorite last month was called Wisdom Point, a 2020 Sauvignon Blanc from Western Cape, South Africa. Join today and you'll get six bottles of wine for $29.95 with free shipping. Go to tryfirstleaf.com slash SFTC. That's tryfirstleaf.com slash SFTC for six bottles of wine for $29.95 with free shipping. Here's a toast to firsts. May you enjoy them with the people you love from the first sip to the last. Tryfirstleaf.com slash SFTC. Today's sponsor, Proven Skincare, creates personalized skincare based on over 47 factors about a person's skin, genetic background, lifestyle, and environment. Forbes calls it the Tesla of skincare where beauty meets technology. Proven skincare formulas are rooted in the world's largest beauty database, the Skin Genome Project, and the winner of MIT's AI Technology of the Year Award. It analyzed the universe of skincare data, including the effectiveness of over 20,000 skincare ingredients from over 100,000 skincare products and over 28 million testimonials from real people. All of this analysis results in proven skincare's custom three-step system that actually works, including a personalized cleanser, daily moisturizer with SPF, and personalized night cream. I love the ease of a three-step system. It's what I and most women are used to. So proven skincare doesn't complicate things for you. Take their online skin genome quiz and get a personalized skincare routine that fits you. Plus, your formulations are updated every eight weeks to evolve with you based on changing seasons, your skin's acclimation to ingredients, and more. Visit ProvenSkincare.com to take the free skin genome quiz and use code SFTC at checkout for $20 off your first order plus free shipping. That's ProvenSkincare.com code SFTC for $20 off your first order. ProvenSkincare.com code SFTC. In the evening hours of June 8th, Darren and Darley were supposed to go to the funeral home for a viewing, but the police kept them at the station, so they ended up being two hours late. Their families were at the funeral home and had to wait for the police to bring Darley and Darren before they could get started with the viewing. When Darley and Darren finally got to the funeral home, they saw their boys in their casket and Darley started screaming. Her Aunt Sherry later testified, it just tore our hearts out. We could feel her pain. The boys were buried in the same coffin. Darren testified. They died together, and they went to heaven together. There is another detail about the boys in the coffin that both Haley and I found to be really disturbing. Darren put pocket knives in the boys' pockets. He said the boys had always wanted pocket knives, but that they were too young, so he didn't get them for them while they were still alive. Okay. People will say the same thing that they always say about the routiers, that everyone grieves differently. But would you put knives in your son's pockets if they had been stabbed to death? Pastor David Rogers was in charge of the viewing, and he was also around Darley for three to four days after. He later testified that Darley was grieving appropriately. He said her displays of grief appeared to be genuine and real. On the 9th, Pastor David Rogers officiated the boy's funeral. Rogers testified that Darley grieved and she cried and acted just like dozens of other people I have seen who have lost loved ones. When the prosecution cross-examined Rogers, they brought up how the pastor had developed a close relationship with Darren and Darley after the murders. Before, Rogers had only met Darren two or three times. 
It was Darren's brother who was a congregation member at Rogers Church. But after the murders, the pastor became close to both routiers. In fact, his wife started working for Darren, and Rogers visited Darley 51 times in jail before her trial. At the funeral, Darley played Gangster's Paradise by Coolio. She has been heavily criticized for this. She said the boys did not understand the lyrics but loved dancing to the beat and it was one of their favorite songs. And to be fair, they also played Jesus Loves Me and I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston. Like many things in this case, it is really up for you to decide if you think Gangster's Paradise was appropriate to play at a double funeral for small children. Much like the knives Darren put in the boys' pockets. You probably have heard the litany of people who say everyone grieves differently, and there is more of that to come. But I do believe it is your personal choice on these matters. And for the jurors, it was their personal choice. On June 10th, after the funeral, Darley had an interview with police where they photographed her injuries again. Now, she had a very big bruise that ran the length of her right arm. I will show the photographs of this on my social media. It is not just a bruise. It is a large, bloody hematoma running under her arm from her wrist to her armpit. This bruise has come into question quite often. According to every single person working at the hospital, Darley did not have this bruise when she was in the hospital. There were no signs of swelling, redness, or the early stages of bruising. Dr. Patrick Dillon testified they would have seen evidence of this type of bruising within 24 hours of the attack. When looking at the photo of the bruising taken at the police station, Dr. Alejandro Santos said the injury was 24 to 48 hours old, meaning it had occurred on June 8th or 9th, which would have been after Darley was released from the hospital. Nurse Jody Cotner testified that she changed Darley's dressings on her right arm and there were no signs of bruising. Remember, Darley had a cut on that forearm that required stitches. Cotner said she absolutely would have seen something at that time, and it would have been very sore and painful for Darley. Cotner also testified that the bruise photographed at the police station was 24 hours old, 48 at the max. Darley was in the hospital for 48 hours. Nurse Paige Campbell testified that when she bathed Darley's right arm, she had to move it around, and Darley never complained of any pain in her arm. Darley did have a smaller bruise on her left wrist when she was in the hospital. On June 10th, the bruise was turning yellow and green. If the large bruise on Darley's right arm had been inflicted at the same time as the one on her left wrist, the bruise on her right arm would have also been turning yellow and green. Dr. Santos said if he had seen that extensive bruising, he would have ordered x-rays. He said it looked to be from blunt force trauma. If she had gotten the bruise from fighting with an intruder, you would expect to see fingerprint marks in different places, not this giant, horrific bruise the length of her arm. It is that bad, and I will have photos of this on my social media as well. The only people who allegedly saw the right arm bruise were Darley's friends and family. Many of them testified about seeing the bruise while she was in the hospital. But according to the prosecution, those people were influenced by a family member who was taking notes during the trial. Darley's Aunt Sherry said she noticed bruising on Darley's arm on the 7th. It was just covering her arm, Sherry said, and that at the viewing, which was on June 8th, Darley was wearing a short-sleeved dress and the bruising was really getting dark. Aunt Sherry said they were the worst bruises she had ever seen. When the prosecution cross-examined Sherry, they asked why she didn't bring up the bruise to the hospital staff, and she said it wasn't her place. You would think she would be concerned for her niece and not worried about etiquette, but whatever. People who were supposed to testify were not allowed in the courtroom until after their testimony was over. But Darren's Aunt Sandy, who did not have to testify, sat in the courtroom every day and took lots of notes. According to the prosecution, Sandy then shared information with the people who were supposed to testify. This is something else I want to point out to people who say Darley did not get a fair trial. Her family was lying on the stand 
after they were informed of the testimony from medical professionals. Pastor David Rogers testified that when Darley arrived for the viewing, her arm was in a sling. He said he saw Darren's cousin help Darley adjust the sling, and he could see bruising on her right arm. During cross-examination, Pastor David Rogers admitted that he knew Darren's Aunt Sandy had been taking notes. When the prosecution asked, they told you what was going on? Rogers nodded his head affirmatively and said, sure. This is what I meant in the last episode when I said I thought Darley had charmed the good pastor. He also, by then, had a conflict of interest with his wife working for Darren. To me, that discredits a lot of his testimony. Sure, you expect a pastor to say a grieving mother acted appropriately. You don't, however, expect a pastor to lie about her injuries. And now let us get to the all-important damned silly string incident. On June 14th, a graveside prayer service for Damon and Devon was held. Around 12 people were present. Following the prayer service, the family held a seventh birthday party for Devon. He would have been seven that day. Darley's Aunt Sherry made a comment on the stand that, quote, they had already had so much prepared for it. Darley would later say it was also very much for the neighborhood children. This, again, is something I think you have to decide for yourself. Personally, I would feel my child had been traumatized enough by the murders and I would not want them at a graveside birthday party. But this had been organized as a prayer service. That I can understand. Children do need closure. It is difficult for them to understand death sometimes. And while I would not want my child to have seen the Routier boys in their coffin, I can certainly understand the need for a small ceremony. Devin's friends made cards and people brought balloons all of which are perfectly normal to see on graves, and not just the graves of children. There is absolutely nothing wrong with this. But Darley's sister Dana brought Silly String to the party, and she handed it to Darley. Whatever else you may feel about the Silly String incident, it is important to note that Darley invited the press there. We have such a clear video of her laughing, chewing gum, and spraying the Silly String because she did it for the TV cameras. When asked, why the confetti, why the balloons, why the happy birthday song? Darley said, if you knew Devin and Damon, you would know they're up in heaven and they're up there having the biggest party they can ever imagine, and they wouldn't want us to be down here being sad, even though our hearts are breaking. You really should watch this interview for yourself. Darley and Darren both are smiling throughout. To me, their demeanor is very strange. But again, watch for yourself. Decide for yourself. When they were asked how they feel when they think about what happened, Darley said, we get very sad. We cry a lot. We get sick. We get very angry. We get very angry because this person is still out there doing whatever he wants to do. Darren, still smiling, talks about the, quote, high-tech stuff in the investigation stuff he had never even seen in the movies. He and Darley both say they are confident the killer will be caught. Darley said she felt fear and pain that night, and that she was in shock and unaware of her own injuries and was just focused on her children. Quote, All I was thinking about was trying to save the babies. I mean, Darren and I tried to save the babies, but it was too late, and babies were gone. Well, Darren was seen giving CPR to Devin. Darley, however, was never seen helping either of her sons by law enforcement or paramedics. When asked about the accusation that Darley killed the boys, Darley said, We don't want to get into that part. Unfortunately, gossip is the biggest evil in the world. And unfortunately, there's nothing you can do to stop it. And we're not going to make an issue out of this because anybody that knows us knows how we were, know how we lived, you know, They know the story, and we don't have to explain ourselves to anybody. This is the only time in the interview that Darley appears to tear up, and then she walks away. Darren said, quote, I kept hoping and praying that they, that this guy had stolen something out of my house, that he picked me and my family because I had more than some. That way, I could in my heart think, we're living large is the reason why we got targeted. 
He is still smiling. His demeanor is just as strange as Darley's to me. Darren then said he didn't know why they were targeted. He said, now we know that this is a sick individual that took absolutely nothing from our house, but took the most, the two most important things that were important to us away from us. Prior to the prayer service, detectives Jimmy Patterson and Chris Frosch put a microphone in a bush that was 10 to 15 feet from the grave site. The investigators did not have a warrant or the family's consent. However, they did have the consent of the cemetery owner. This will be a huge matter of contention at trial, and I will get into it more when we get to the trial. Four days later, on June 18th, Darley was at the police station for another interview when she was formally arrested and charged with two counts of capital murder. The Rowlett Police Department released a statement saying, quote, This arrest is the result of the most extensive and exhaustive investigation ever conducted by the Rowlett Police Department. They also said they didn't believe Darren was involved. Chief Randall Posey said at a news conference, quote, The crime scene tells a story. Unfortunately, it's different than Darley's. Southern Fried True Crime is written, hosted, and produced by me, Erica Kelly. Today's episode was researched by the one and only Haley Gray, with additional research by me. Southern Fried's original music is by Rob Harrison of Gamma Radio, and the original graphic art is by Coley Horner. Yes, I am sorry, but there will be a third and final episode in this series. I know many of you dislike when I have to do two-parters, but in four years and 140 episodes, I've only ever done one other three-part series. I could have found so many ways to summarize, but then my episode would be considered biased. As I told you in the last episode, books, documentaries, and podcasts that are considered biased usually leave so much out. In a case this complicated with such divisive views, I wanted you to have all the detail. So hang in there. We have one more episode to go. Come join our Facebook group, Southern Fried True Crime Fans Discussion Group, where we swap recipes, worship Dolly Parton, and share memes. Our group is a safe and fun corner of Facebook, and by God, we mean it when we say no shit ass is allowed. It's not just a motto, it is how we run the group. If you enjoyed today's show, don't forget to subscribe and please tell a friend or rate and review on iTunes. I'm also on all large platforms like iHeart, Stitcher, and Spotify. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. Y'all take care. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.